Chapter Twenty Five of Order Number Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Order Number Eleven by Caroline Abbott Stanley. Chapter Twenty Five: A Dark Night's Ride. That night, while Gordon lay on his bed dreaming waking dreams of another day of bliss, and Virginia Trevilian was sending up fervent prayers for his safety. A strange company was gathering in Tobe Taggart's big room, which, by the way, was no larger than the rest of the rooms in the modest log house, but was so designated because it was the state apartment, reserved for guests. In that hospitable section even the lowliest home had its place for guests. Many other things were lacking, but never this. On the south side of the passageway which had so excited Miss Nanny's mirth was the family room, with the children in the loft. On the north side was the big room, its two high, rounded beds suggesting the plucking of generations of geese, and gorgeous just now in rising sun quilts and diminutive pillows edged with crocheted lace. At the windows were paper shades, with gay ladies and gentlemen on them, and tonight the shades were closely drawn. Above this room was Renée's bedchamber in the roof, reached by a ladder. One looking at the house from the front would never have guessed that there was a second story, but its presence was attested by a small window in each gable. There were no windows below them, the gable ends of that house being mainly occupied in taking care of the immense fireplaces and the scarcely less immense outside stone chimneys that led therefrom. Renée and her young sister had, by invitation, ascended their ladder early, so as to be out of the way of the guests. "'They'll be gone before you want to get up,' Mr. Taggart had said, when she had complained of this apparent caging of herself and Lizy Ann. There was a note of significance in his words that did not escape Renée's attention, but she was not much accustomed to questioning her father, and lighted her candle with no more words. Lizy Ann's breathing was giving evidence of sleep when the men entered the room below. A considerable time had elapsed, long enough, in fact, for Renée to take out the lower sash and hang an old quilt in front of the window after the child was asleep. She could hardly have told why she did it, but that something was on foot she knew. She had seen the men talking around the woodpile, and she wanted an exit. She had let down the trap-door which gave the two rooms a decent appearance of privacy, but there was a big crack in the door, widening at one end, and a knot-hole. Renée's eye was over this hole. There were three of the men besides her father, all heavily armed with revolvers, though they carried neither guns nor sabers. One had a bowie-knife in his belt. They were shaggy and ill-kempt, and had the look of men who were hunted and hunting, for they kept their revolvers close at hand, and drew them sometimes at an unexpected noise. Once, when a rose-bush scraped against the window-pane, Every man cocked his pistol and stood ready, looking a little sheepish when the cause of the noise was ascertained. Renée, from her point of observation above, surveyed this company with interest. She knew these men. One of them was Hank Menefee, who had turned corners so furiously at the barbecue. That was his way of doing things. Hank had just come. He had not been with them when she had seen them at the woodpile. 
Jeff Lows, we better not all go to sleep at one time, suggested Hank Menifee, when they began to lounge on the beds. Shucks, responded Mr. Taggart, contemptuously. Old Tige is unchained, and I reckon he's got better years than any one of you. Yes, and he knows more, added Dick Renfrew, who was young. Oh, shut up, Dick. This ain't no time for puns. I reckon Dick would pun, or try to, if it was the judgment day, said Mr. Taggart. I've known men killed for less than a pun like that one. But people that pun just naturally has to get em in, good or bad. I reckon you'll see one killed tonight for less, answered the one called Dick. I don't quite stomach that job myself. The man that had said nothing turned sharply upon him. Well, stay at home, then, he said gruffly. We don't want no backing out. Shucks, said Tope Taggart, soothingly. Nobody ever knowed of Dick Renfrew's backing out of anything. He's game, ain't you, Dick? I ain't a-backin' out, said Dick, and Jeff knows it. But I tell you, I don't like this thing of killin' for nothin'. Nothin'? You call it nothin' for a man's house to be burnt over his head, and his stock run off, and— Well, he ain't done it. His side done it. Look here, boys, remarked Tobe, authoritatively. Quit your quarrelin' and go to sleep. If we get off at two o'clock— The girl at the knot-hole, with senses strained to the utmost, started. We! Was he in it, too? The gruff man looked apprehensively up at the trap-door. The eye was not there now, but an ear was pressed close to the knot-hole. "'Who's up there?' he asked suspiciously. "'Nobody but my two gals,' returned Tobe Taggart, with warmth. "'If you are so all-a-fired skeery, Jeff Dykus, maybe you better go somewheres else for your meeting place There ain't no spies around here, I can tell you that.' It was the gruff man's turn now to play pacificator, and when this was done to the satisfaction of all, Tobe withdrew. There was not much said after he was gone, but the girl who was playing eavesdropper was quick-witted, and she knew the gang. A man was to be killed. That much was sure. And killed for nothing. Dick had said for revenge. That meant he was on the Union side. Who was the man? She could only conjecture. She was getting weary of her cramped position and the small returns it was bringing her when Dick spoke again. "'Say, Jeff, you can shoot the boy if you want to. He's fighting on the other side. But durned if I'll see the old doctor harmed. He took me through a spell of pneumonia last winter.' Rene sat up. It was Gordon Lay. She crept into bed then, and lay with wide-open eyes staring up at the roof. And her father was in it, too. As she lay there, her mind alert and active as her senses had been when she was on the trap-door. A fierce anger surged within her. They shouldn't do this thing. What right had they to take Gordon Lay's life? He hadn't harmed them. No, nor would he, even if he had the chance. She raised herself cautiously on one elbow then, and listened. She could hear the heavy breathing of the three men. They had learned to catch sleep when they could. There was never any telling when it would be over. She sat at the side of the bed in the darkness, thinking out a plan. She must perfect every detail before she made a move. She couldn't light the candle. Where were her shoes? She felt along stealthily for them. Ah, here they were. She put them inside the waist of her calico dress. 
Fortunately, she had not removed her clothes. She reached for a shawl that lay across the bed. Why hadn't she pulled up the ladder? A sheet would not be long enough to reach the ground after it was tied securely. She had jumped from greater heights, but she knew the splash on the wet ground beneath would betray her. She had never stirred from her place. It was her mind only that was groping around the loft for something that would let her down. That was all she cared for, only to get out and on her mare, Kit. It was raining hard. The night was starless and dark, save for an occasional flash of lightning. But she cared not for that. If she could only get down. Her mind traveled around the loft, taking in the things stowed away under the edge of the roof. It traveled slowly, for there were many obstructions. Finally it struck. A thrill passed through her. She would never say again there wasn't any such thing as providence, as she had said the other day to Grandma Tolls. It struck the old bedcord that had been replaced by a new one. She found it definitely with her brain before she moved. Then she went noiselessly across the room to where it was. Her hand closed upon it exactly where she thought it would be. She had even calculated the distance. The human mind has room to stow away a good deal of rubbish and find it again, if one will only give thought sufficiently concentrated to the matter. She unrolled it, matched ends, and tied knots a foot and a half apart all the way down. Then she fastened it to the bedpost and made her way to the window, thanking God with a fervor new to her, for Renée was not very religious, that she had taken out the window. They would certainly have heard her if she had had to do that now. In two minutes she had gone down that rope like a cat, stopping near the bottom to say softly, Tig! Tig! The dog licked her hand. In two minutes more she was saying soothing things to Kit, who whinnied low. The saddle was in the passageway, but Renée was not dependent upon saddles. She found a bridle by feeling for it, and was off. It was three good miles to Dr. Lay's over summer roads. They were doubled in March, when each step was as far down as forward. She went slowly at first, startled, every time Kit's foot came out of the mud, for fear the sound would be heard, faster when the distance grew, and then at a mad gallop when she struck the prairie road. She was barebacked and astride. A bonnet was not within reach, and she had tied on an old hat of her father's that her hand chanced to touch. The storm that had been threatening all evening was upon them, but she was glad of it. Nobody else would be likely to be out. The lightning flashes showed her that Kit knew the road. The creek was up. There had been a thaw that had set all the brooklets running, and the rain had been steady for hours. She was not quite sure of the ford, but Kit would know. She gathered up her skirts, spoke soothingly to the mare, and plunged in. And Kit missed the ford. There was an agonizing five minutes for Renée Taggart then. The mare, finding her footing gone, plunged, snorted, and began to swim. Renée dug her heels into Kit's sides, and clung to her neck with the grip of despair. The current took them down the stream, but the brave animal's feet touched a bank at last, and up she plunged. After that it was easy. There were no more streams to cross. It was dark at Dr. Lay's when the girl stopped before the door and sent out a ringing, Hello! It was the ordinary call at a doctor's house, 
and it was a woman's voice, but Mrs. Lay, not the doctor, answered it from the window. They took no unnecessary chances in those days. Who is it? It's me, Rene Taggart. Oh, did you want the doctor, Rene? Is anybody sick? No, but... Get off and come in, child. I'll be down in a minute. When she got in, they were all there, even Sally shivering over the balusters. Gordon took her by the hand. What is it, Renee? They are after you, she said simply. I came to tell you. After me? Who? The men. Quantrell's men. What have I done? Nothing. They are going to kill you for what Jennison's done, I reckon. She told of the plot she had heard, leaving out her father and Hank Menefee, and, indeed, giving no names. They were Quantrell's men. That was all she would say. The circumstantial exactness of her report left them no reason to doubt its accuracy. "'I am sure I don't know what I can do,' said Gordon. "'Every horse on the place has been taken. Mine with them. Fortunately, they did not know I was here, or they would have got me then.' "'Maybe you could get one from Colonel Trevilian,' called Sally from the stairs. "'You haven't got time for that,' cried Rene. "'I tell you they'll be here before you get off, if you don't hurry. Take Kit.' Your horse? What will you do? Oh, I'll get home some way. Go on. Take Kit and go. When you get to Kansas City, turn her loose. She'll come back. Oh, hurry, hurry. Suppose somebody should take her up? If anybody can catch her, they are welcome to, she said proudly. Rene, if your father finds out that you have done this, what will he do? I don't know. Her lips grew white, but her eyes blazed. I don't care. Take Kit and go. I'll take you home first, he said. It's a good long time till two o'clock. If you'll get me across the creek, she said, the horror of that crossing stiffening her tongue, I won't mind the rest. I know a shortcut. Goodbyes were said quickly in those days. It was a straining embrace and a God bless you, and he was gone. She rode behind him, her arms around his waist. Hold tight, Rene, he said. There's no time to lose. It recalled Virginia and their ride after her girth broke. It was what he had said to her. He might never see her again. They crossed the creek in safety. He took her to the pasture fence. Then she slipped down from her seat, and he stood beside her. He threw the bridle over his arm and took her hands. Rene, you have saved my life. God bless you. He held her cheeks between his hands her cold, wet cheeks, and kissed her on the lips. Then he was gone. Renee Taggart walked home in a dream. She could feel the touch of his lips yet. It was raining, but she did not know it. She stepped into puddles, and the water gurgled in her shoes, but she did not feel it. She touched her lips once with the tips of her fingers to see if they were the same. The next morning Mrs. Taggart went early to Renée's room. The bed-cord, with all its knots untied, was rolled up and tucked away under the roof. The wet quilt was under the bed. Renée's dress hung before the window. "'Did you hear anybody prowling around here last night?' Mrs. Taggart stood beside her daughter's bed. "'No,' Renée's heart was beating like a trip-hammer. "'Well, Kit's missing this morning.' Must have got loose, I reckon, in the night. 
the ice was so thin that Renée did not dare to risk a step. Her mother turned from the bed to the garment hanging in front of the window. "'Why, Renée Taggart, what's the matter with your dress? It says wet at sop.' "'It is? I left it in front of the window, and I reckon it got rained on. It was a powerful beaten rain.' Mrs. Taggart looked at her sharply. She was putting two and two together. "'Humph!' she said didactically to her offspring. "'Don't ever be a bigger fool than you have to, Renée.' End of chapter 25 Recording by Brian Keenan